Amen. Well, it is a great privilege and blessing to get to be back uh, at Southwest Baptist Church. Uh, the church here is such a blessing to me. The staff is a blessing. Most of the staff is a blessing uh, here. I'm not sure about Brother Ted a little bit, but uh, thankful so much uh, for uh, the opportunity to be back. It really has been great just even since right when we walked in to see familiar faces and uh, just to get to, to talk to everyone again and uh, love seeing uh, people staying faithful, uh, you know, after being here uh, at Heartland and now being gone for uh, several years and here and there coming back uh, to still now be able to see everyone just uh, uh, moving forward and uh, continuing to go on faithful to the Lord. It's an encouragement and it's a blessing. And I just want to thank you, church. I still remember uh, the time being here and the encouragement that each and every one of you uh, were. And so I'm, I'm grateful to get to come and to preach the word tonight. And uh, uh, you, you scare me, though, whenever you start mentioning my dad and Pastor Humbert and things like that, guys with actual personality, um, and that I have to now follow them. Uh, but uh, definitely grateful uh, to be able to have uh, uh, been mentored by them and uh, appreciate them so much. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews and chapter number 12, Hebrews and chapter number 12. And uh, again, I'm thankful that Brother uh, Gaddis would uh, let me uh, preach even in his absence. That's so risky. This is my first time to preach here uh, with him not being here, but uh, um, thankful uh, for the, the chance and the opportunity. So we're in Hebrews and uh, chapter number 12. Before we get into the reading, do just want to say a few remarks about the book of Hebrews. Uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, the author has challenged the believers to be steadfast to Christ. And that has been one of his main charges to them. And this meant they needed to listen to all that God had to say to them, uh, especially all he had to say through Jesus Christ and to live in accordance with what God had said through Christ. And he wants the readers basically to follow the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what happens. The believers had suffered uh, a lot because of their faith and they're beginning now to hesitate and to wonder, is it worth it? to stay steadfast to Jesus Christ, even amidst all of the suffering. And the author wants to help them then not to faint, meaning don't be discouraged to the point of quitting. And he just finished explaining how God can use suffering to do good in their lives. And he just explained how suffering doesn't mean that God is not for them or with them. Instead, actually, suffering can be a way through which God can prove his love and acceptance of them. And it can be a way in which God's plans and purposes can be carried out in your life. So then in verses 12 through 13, which we didn't read, he tells them to basically let this perspective on suffering give you a resolve to be steadfast, to run the race, to keep fighting and don't stop running towards the goal God has set before you. Now, here's where he begins to transition and begins to help them know what the path of steadfastness is going to look like. Uh, how should they run this race? And he begins to detail what kind of life that they should live in this pilgrimage towards the heavenly city and what kind of running should characterize them in this race. And the way they are told to live is the way that we are told to live. The way they run is how we ought to run. And that's where we look here in Hebrews chapter 12. Take a look at verse number 14. He says this, Follow peace with all men and holiness, 
without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now skip over to verse 28. And again, encouraging them to run their race well, he defines how it should be run or what it looks like in verse 28. He says, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, praise the Lord for that, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The path that they are to take, the way of steadfastness, the way they are to run the race means they diligently pursue peace and holiness. Which as I look at it, I believe is basically synonymous with verse 28, serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. When they focus on what matters, it should lead to a diligent pursuit of serving God above all else. If they don't respond this way, then they can be distracted. And there are dangers. There are dangers that come with distraction. It's costly. And so the author warns them to be diligent or else they can be distracted. And so the title of the sermon this evening is Diligent or Distracted. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, I'm grateful to be able to preach your word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here at Southwest Baptist Church. Lord, such a, a precious church. And I pray, God, that you would bless this evening. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Uh, God, nothing can be done without the spirit of God moving. And so, God, would you help me to be a spirit-filled preacher? But, God, I pray that you'd help the audience to be a spirit-filled listening audience. Lord, spirit-filled, ready to receive what you have to say and God, may their answer already be yes, Lord, to whatever you have. And so, God, would you just be at work, Lord? We need you and we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. In seeking for information on the word diligence, I was intrigued by an assumption that we often make. Uh, the definition itself was really straightforward. Uh, from uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the, the definition was steady earnest and energetic effort. Steady, earnest, and energetic effort. But what I found intriguing is the assumption made when this attribute is recognized as a virtue. If you uh, searched online and began to, to see the, the way in which people talk about diligence, it's, it's almost always promoted, obviously, in a, a positive way as a characteristic that someone ought to have. And so there is really this assumption here that uh, that it is a steady, earnest, and energetic effort towards goals or pursuits, and those goals or pursuits were always assumed to be noble or good. It's always assumed that that is the case. We typically think of true diligence as steady, earnest, and energetic effort for something that actually matters or is good. I don't usually see a father encouraging their son to be diligent, saying, you need to be as diligent as that thief over there. That guy steals like nobody else, man. He is earnest. He is steady. He is amazing at how good of a thief he is. You need to be that diligent. We don't usually use that as some kind of illustration. No, we, we usually assume that there's something good that we are, uh, we are pursuing. And, and what we understand is that that same effort, that earnest, steadfast, energetic effort directed towards an unworthy pursuit 
is not usually considered diligence. It might actually be called a distraction. A man may appear diligent at work because he's uh, on time, he's always there, he is focused, he's busy, he's staying late, showing up early, going the extra mile, never calling off sick. But if you learned, he never spent time with his wife and his kids. He never actually took time to be at church. He never took time uh, to call his mom or his dad, pay attention basically to nothing else. We usually don't now think, hey, yeah, that's a diligent guy. We say, no, that's a distracted man. It's a distracted person. A young person can diligently pursue an education and career and spend countless hours studying and volunteering and participating in clubs and, and achieving amazing scholastic goals. But if they don't study the Bible, they don't witness for Jesus Christ, they don't go to church, they don't serve others for the glory of God, they are just distracted. Distracted. It's not diligence, no matter how steady or earnest it may be. Our text issues a command and warning to diligently pursue what matters. If you don't, then you're going to be opening up yourself to distraction, and there is a cost to that. To put more detail on what it looks like to run the race and be steadfast, the author describes what kind of life matters, what is actually worth pursuing. The believers should diligently pursue peace and holiness, because a lack of diligence is going to lead to a costly distraction. And so the text says to follow and to look diligently. Those are the words that we see it used, to follow and look diligently. Those are some of the words we need to recognize. And, and that tells us this, that this is a diligent pursuit. Uh, the Greek word for uh, follow there suggests that this is not just a desire or an interest. You know, I would say if someone says, hey, do you like, if someone asked me, do you like sports? I would say, yeah, I follow sports, meaning I check the scores every once in a while, but I haven't watched a full game in probably years. And so you can say, okay, I follow it in the sense that I'm interested in it. I, I, I kind of like it, but you know, I don't like it enough to where it really like, you know, it makes me passionate or, or excited if someone wins or, or sad when someone loses. I don't really get into it that much. I don't really spend my time. I'm not diligent with that. But that's not what this is talking about. This word follow here is a passionate pursuit, a passionate pursuit, a, a, a ruling desire, a focused pursuit, a chief goal. Like when it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, that kind of following. That's what it's talking about. As kids, uh, we, we used uh, to try to catch our grandparents putting out the presents under the Christmas tree. Now, you may have, you know, your thoughts about whether that should be done or not. But hey, you know what? That's not the point of the story. OK, but that's just what we did is, is we were uh, there was a bunch of us boys and and uh, they would uh, like to hide the presents and then put them out under the Christmas tree Christmas morning. And so we would always try to catch them in the act of doing it. We'd set booby traps. Now, you probably shouldn't do that for your grandparents. All right. But we're boys. We don't think. OK, we just do. And every single year we, we tried to catch them and we never could. I mean, it just never happened. But there was one time we knew there was no way they were getting away from it. I mean, I think we attached strings to their doors. You know, like if they got out of bed like, and out of that room, we would know and something would happen. And nothing happened. We fell asleep, woke up the next morning and there were the Christmas presents. We thought, what in the world? You know, so we went and talked to grandma. Grandma, what happened? How did you do this? She said, guys. We did it during the day. 
said, what, how did you do that? We were, we, were, uh, we were there with you during the day. Yeah, I walked right in front of you with the presence. <laughs> I said, how in the world did you do that? She said, you guys were watching TV. Oh. We were so focused on the TV that we missed grandma who walked right in front of us. We, we, we wanted to catch her, yes, but not as bad as we wanted to watch TV. There was another desire that trumped the other and made us not so easily distracted. You know, quite possibly the biggest reason Christians get distracted is because they're not diligently pursuing what actually matters. It's a desire. Look, it's a desire they want to. If you're a Christian, you want to serve God. You want to do what he wants you to do. But friends, it doesn't always mean it is a chief desire. So even though you genuinely want to be steadfast and faithful to the Lord, you want to live in victory over sin, you want to live right, there is something that you want in the moment more. And so it's much easier than to lose pursuit of what God wants. Listen, it's harder to be distracted when you're locked in, when you're sucked in and only interested in it. And if the it is wrong, then God's voice is easily drowned out. He could be doing something right in front of your face and you miss it because you're focused on something else. It's not that you don't have, uh, it's not, you know, again, it's not that you, you, know, uh, you, you don't have godly desires. It's just that you're focused on something else. But if the it is right, then Satan's voice is easily drowned out. And it's not that you don't have other desires and even desires of the flesh that are sinful, but they don't have as much control because your main desire, your main pursuit is something else. So the question becomes, what are you diligently pursuing? No, what are you diligently pursuing as the chief focus of your life? For the believer, we're told in this passage what we ought to be focusing on, what we ought to be diligently pursuing. Believers should diligently pursue peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. Well, what is that all about? Well, if we took them as objective facts, we would recognize this, that peace and holiness are gifts that only Jesus Christ can give us. Only he can give us peace with God and with each other. Only he can truly do that. Only he can give us holiness before a holy God. They, they are things that come with salvation. They are realities that we don't have to work for or do anything for. They come with salvation. But here's the thing. It says, though, to pursue them. What does that mean? Well, to pursue them means to let their objective realities now be seen in how I live. Let them become practiced realities in my life. It says to live, to follow peace with all men. What is that talking about? This is talking about the peace that all of us Christians have together. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, but that also now means we have peace with each other. We're, a, we're the family of God. Amen. We have the same family. We're on the same team. Uh, we have the blood of Jesus Christ on our account. All of us do. We're not enemies, but we're brothers and sisters. It speaks of the solidarity we have as the family of God. And so how do we pursue this peace? Well, we pursue it by living like we're at peace, Amen. by actually living like we're at peace with one another, meaning we love and care for one another. We try to help each other live faithful to God and be steadfast. We want to all move forward together. We resolve problems and we try to help each other grow because we want to fight beside each other, not against each other. 
We don't want to be stumbling blocks, but instead we want to be encouragements. We pursue what brings us closer together. What's best for us all, not just for ourselves. We live in community with each other. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We see that the blood of Christ has brought us together in his leadership. And so I am all about what God's people are all about. So we have to ask, does that define what you diligently pursue? How diligently are you, are you pursuing this? Do you, listen to this, do you have a passion to see other people grow in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a passion to live at peace with one another? Meaning to resolve any and every issue. Do you have a great desire to just be, I just want to be a help. I just want to be an encouragement to people. When you come into church, is that your goal? Do you get a great sense of identity and joy of saying, hey, I am a part of Southwest Baptist Church. Are you passionate about being active in the church? Is it a chief desire for you just to express love and care for the other members in this church? Are you just looking around seeing who can I show love to today? How can I manifest that I'm at peace, that we are all together on this? Or do you just show up to sit in a pew? Are you just here and not really involved? Do you pursue peace with all men? But he also says that we ought to be pursuing holiness. Holiness without which no man can see the Lord. This means that since it's essential that God made you holy through Jesus Christ, it should be essential that you live holy. You live in holiness. Well, what is holiness? We could go all night on that, but it means to be set apart unto, to be separated from sin and dedicated to God in his righteous ways and his purposes. It has to do with your character and morality. It's about loving and worshiping God. It's about having the right attitudes towards people, of course, but it's about living with integrity and honesty and compassion and all the other good virtues, abstaining, of course, from fornication and lying and stealing and pride and, and all their unholy things. Well, we get that. You have the right heart towards God and man, and that leads to correct living. But the question becomes this. We know that is what holiness is, but we have to ask the question, how diligently are you pursuing that? Seeking, can you honestly say that the main goal of my life is to seek to please him first above anything and everything else? That that's what I want, that I just want to do what is right in God's eyes? Do you live for the glory of God and the good of others? You, you, you know that's the right answer, but I'm asking you, is that the true answer? Is it the true one? Do you really care about doing what is right or do you just want to look right? Or do you just want to be pragmatic and just do whatever kind of works so that you can get your way? What you think would make you happy. Are you pursuing happiness or holiness? That's what we have to really ask. And I think what summarizes peace and holiness is verse 28, where it says that we should serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And that's what it means to pursue these things, to serve God with a seriousness that exceeds everything else and that realizes how important that it really is and how valuable it is and how dangerous it is to be distracted. A healthy fear of this. Do you diligently serve God? If not, then the dangers of distraction come into play. The passage explains why diligently pursuing serving God is so important. It's because a lack of diligence leads to a costly distraction. 
I interned at a church one summer where uh, one of the beloved members there uh, was run off the road by a distracted driver and just was completely off into a ditch. And the car was driving on the wrong side of the road. And the church member believes that she saw the driver texting. Instead of giving diligence to driving, the other car was pursuing something else, was distracted from what was most important in the moment and drove someone off the road. Thankfully, she was okay, and I'm grateful for that. But that's not the case for hundreds and maybe thousands in America who are killed because of distracted driving. This is not a public service announcement, all right? This is an illustration. I'm simply saying when you get into disastrous distractions, you, you will get into disastrous distractions when you're not diligently pursuing what is most important in life. You have to be diligently pursuing it to avoid the distraction. It can't just be a pursuit. It must be the pursuit. And to be distracted puts you in danger and puts others in danger as well. So in the passage, that's where there's this warning about not being diligent. You see the word lest, lest, lest. Three times it says it. If you don't diligently pursue serving God, then you can be distracted and these are the dangers. People, the first lest, people can fail of the grace of God. We're not talking about losing your salvation here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the grace of God to live life the way he wants you to. You need the grace of God to serve God like a car needs gas to go. You do. The enablement of God to be able to do what he wants you to do. The car can have all it needs, but it won't go anywhere without gas. And you can have all the knowledge in the world and all the tools and talents to serve God, but without grace, you can do nothing. And so this is why it says in verse 28, let us have grace whereby we may serve God. You need God's grace. But it, listen, it only comes when you're diligently pursuing peace and holiness. When you're diligently pursuing what matters. When you're focused on the kingdom coming and living for, for that and living to serve God, then you get grace. God's grace is not for you to have the power to live the life you want to have. It's to have the power to live the life he wants you to live. So here's the deal. The reason you might be struggling to serve God, you might be wrestling and you just feel like you're just spinning your wheels a lot to live the life of peace and, and the life of holiness, to live acceptably before God with reverence and fear. Maybe it's because you're not utilizing God's grace made available to you. And how is that? Because possibly your diligent pursuit is for something else and your pursuit of serving God isn't diligent. You only get grace when your pursuit is right. You want grace in your marriage, no doubt. So that your marriage is what God wants it to be. But you may not have it because maybe you're not really interested in being the husband or wife God wants you to be. Maybe instead you're more interested in them changing and their behavior being different than your behavior being different. And you want your marriage to be fixed so that you're not embarrassed. Not so that God is pleased. Not so that you can honor him with your marriage. And so instead you have a different pursuit and you're more diligent about something else. Well, you won't find God's grace unless you're diligently pursuing what he wants. 
You want grace at work to get you through all the struggles, but you're diligent, but you got to ask yourself, are you diligently pursuing the glory of God to be a witness, to serve others there? Or are you just wanting no more headaches and people to like you and, and to accept you? And again, not that those things are all wrong. Again, it's just about what are you diligently pursuing? What is your chief aim? Is your focus on God? You want grace to overcome sin, but what is the diligent pursuit to just feel good about yourself? Uh, to get something you want that, it, that this sin keeps you from, to, to not be embarrassed anymore. Again, not all entirely bad desires, but are you diligently pursuing the service of God to just serve him acceptably in reverence and holy fear? Is that what you're pursuing? You know, so often Christians seem to be missing grace to endure and to have victory because maybe your focus, your diligent pursuit is being what you want to be being what the world or society says that you should be. Having this, experiencing this, wanting life to be this way. And you're so focused on life being this way that you're missing how God wants your life to be. And so you're missing grace. The sad part about this is that this can lead to others failing of the grace of God. You can drive others off the road when you don't pursue the right things. Your distraction and failure to be diligent can discourage others and lead them to lack diligence as well. You are noticed whether you realize it or not. People know when you are not here. And if they find that you have become unfaithful, do you know how discouraging that is? To a church, to a body that you're a part of, that's discouraging. You can live a life lacking God's grace and then drag your family into the same ditch with you. Because you decided, you know what? I'm going to pursue something else. And you think it's just affecting you, but it doesn't. The worst of all is that you can actually cause people to miss the grace of salvation. You say, how? Because if you were living in pursuit of seeking the kingdom first, then you would be all about preaching the grace of salvation to a lost and dying world. But when you're distracted, you know one of the first things that goes? Witnessing. Suddenly your mouth is shut. And others miss the grace of God. Be diligent. There's another danger, though, of being distracted. It says that people can be defiled by a root of bitterness. We had a neighbor uh, that lived uh, right next to us. Uh, we live in a town home, and so we, just, we shared a wall, and so we were very, very close. And uh, right outside uh, her back window, there was a mulberry tree that was growing up. And I mean, it grew up within just a few months to be a massive tree. We saw it start small as just this little root, this little spring up, and then suddenly it grew into this massive tree that went above our unit, above the house. The, 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 the branches spread to actually start blocking our view in our window, and, and, and it, was, it was crowding everything, and it was up close to the house and near the foundation. And we got to see it from start to finish because our neighbor was a, unable to tend her garden, and the roots sprung up a tree, and it took over, and it even affected us. But you know, this is how sin can work. A root of bitterness is a way to describe any kind of sin. It's bitter. It might be sweet to the taste at first, but it always ends bitter. Unpleasant and corrupt. And it can start small and hidden and be deceptive. It's able to grow when peaceful, holy, acceptable service to God in reverence and fear is not what you're diligently pursuing. When you're off 
focusing on other things, the root begins to grow and you pay no attention. And if your diligent pursuit is the life that you've always wanted to feel the way you want, to be satisfied by things being this way or that, when, when, when you are diligently pursuing things that are for the flesh or self, then instead of plucking up and crowding out roots of bitterness, you're actually cultivating them and letting them grow. They grow well and undetected in soil of those that diligently pursue something other than serving God. Even when serving God is partially a desire, if it's not a diligent desire, the root has room to grow and you might miss it until it's so big. And it can then get to a place where it totally blocks your view of the world and of God. And suddenly you don't see the world and God correctly. And, and, and you maybe start seeing God as not as good as he once was. And the world as more interesting than it once was. And it can start then to crack your foundation and break things. It can be so destructive. But the sad thing is, is that it doesn't just affect you. If you remember, our neighbor's tree has started affecting our view as well. It started shielding us from seeing things. And your root of bitterness can defile many around you, clouding their view of God. And instead of being an influence to run the race well, you're a source that discourages people and can actually lead people to drop out or never come and join the race. There's a danger, but there's a third danger here. People can give up what is most important for what is less important. Uh, in our passage, it talks about Esau being a fornicator. And a fornicator in our passage was a metaphorical way to express Esau's idolatrous or unfaithful heart. Any love for something more than God can be spiritual fornication. God alone deserves our worship and adoration. Above anything else, he ought to be number one. And a profane person here is a secular person or someone who cares more about the here and now and earthly things instead of spiritual and eternal things or the things of God. And when you're not in diligent pursuit of serving God, focused on the eternal kingdom and valuing him and his rewards above all else, then you can become a fornicator and a profane person. When God is not your primary love and serving him is not your main pursuit, then something else will be. That's what, we, that's what we are. We are people of passions. You will be passionate about something. And if it's not him, it will be something else. And then inevitably then, what happens is you will become an idolatrous person, a spiritual fornicator. And this could lead you to be an actual fornicator even. That's why, this is why a lot of fornication persists because God is not the diligent pursuit in life. Something else is. And fornication is a form of idolatry, replacing God with something else. And this can lead then to so many other forms of idolatry where you make up a God that excuses how you live because you living how you want is what you're actually diligently pursuing. Or you make a God out of something else. Your job, your family, your relationships, your reputation, your feelings, your comfort, sports, pleasure, whatever. It can all be spiritual fornication or idolatry. When you're not diligently pursuing what matters, you'll diligently pursue what doesn't matter. It'll come out somehow, some way. And all of this, though, what happens? You become a profane person. You're living for something less than God. And the danger is that you give up what God can give you for something else that isn't near as valuable. Not even close. Esau regretted his decision in the end. 
and you'll regret a misplaced diligence, a distracted life. You'll regret it. You will. And for believers, that's what we have to have our concern about, the, the, to recognize the, these dangers are real, that we don't just say, okay, yeah, hey, I'm on my way to heaven and that just makes everything okay. No, there are real dangers. Not that you'll lose your salvation, but there are real dangers of loss of reward. There is shame. There is pain. There are problems that come when you live distracted and you're not the only one who pays the cost. And so there is a concern for believers. But you know, I always love to put this in here too because I recognize that not everyone in here or everyone that's listening is maybe a believer. There might be some that are listening or here that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for you, the stakes are so much higher. So much higher. For you to not listen to what God has said about Christ and your need for Him has dire consequences. You can diligently pursue a lot of things in this world, but if it takes you away from turning your life over to Christ and trusting Him as Lord and Savior, you will regret where you placed your focus. You'll regret it one day. So don't let anything keep you from repenting and coming to Christ. It's so serious that Jesus Christ died on a cross and resurrected from the grave for you. He took it that seriously. You need to take it that seriously. God came in the flesh. He took your guilt and sin and punishment and rose so you can be saved. There is nothing more important than trusting him as Lord and Savior. So don't let anything make you think that it is more important. It's all deception. It's all a distraction. But tonight, really, the main focus has been for believers. And so I want to ask you something now. If you're a believer in Christ, let me ask you, are you diligent or are you distracted? Let's be honest with ourselves. You see, there's a grace that you can experience that's wonderful. To overcome sin and suffering and when, when you're listening to God's word and you're running diligently in pursuit of serving him, you can have that grace and you can enjoy it and you can have victory over sin and you can find victory even in suffering and you can bear up under it so much better when you're diligently pursuing what's right. Your pastor is a runner. I just run. There's a big difference, okay? Being a runner assumes that you do it often. Running or being someone who just runs means that you can do it sometimes, okay? So I do it, but sometimes. And nevertheless, every time I've gone on a run, I wouldn't listen to anything but the sound of my feet flopping on the ground and the noise of my lungs about to explode. So that's usually all I would really listen to. Uh, but I remember going on a run one day thinking, you know, I'm going to maybe listen to something that's interesting, something that would kind of grab my attention, take my mind off of the torture uh, that I'm going through. And so I began to listen to something, and I remember I, I head out running, and by the end of the run, I remember thinking, wow, this is great. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't feel as bad. I, I'm feeling pretty good. I don't remember hurting as bad. I, I, I feel like, I, I even felt like this was one of the quickest runs that I had, although I checked my time and it sure wasn't. But uh, it felt like it sure was. It was one of the easiest, least painful runs that I had gone through. Why did it feel easier and shorter? Why didn't I wrestle through this so much? Because I was focused on something else. When you're listening diligently to his voice and you're focused on serving him, sin and suffering are just not big factors anymore. They're a whole lot easier to just put to the side. You get a grace and a strength 
that you don't have on your own. And the journey is just not as bad because you're focused on the joy set before you, on the words that he's spoken. Diligently seek to serve God, focused on eternal blessing and avoiding dangerous distractions. It's worth it. If you're struggling right now, if you're bogged down, check what you're listening to. Check what you're focused on. If you're finding yourself distracted so easily, check what you've been diligently pursuing lately. And look back to what truly matters. Don't settle for your pursuit of God to be N or A important desire. Make it the desire of your life. Or else you could be distracted. And you can be run off the road and you can run others off the road too. Ask yourself, am I diligent or distracted? And make tonight a decisive moment when you return to or you start a diligent pursuit of service to the Lord, pursuing peace and holiness, serving Him acceptably with godly fear. Let's diligently pursue Him. Father, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity we have to serve you. And God, you've told us, Lord, what it looks like to serve you. We, we have it here in your word. And as we look at following after peace and holiness, Lord, and we understand what that means. And as we look to the rest of your word, Lord, and knowing how we ought to serve you acceptably, God, I pray that that would be a chief goal and desire, a diligent pursuit. It cannot be just something that we have an interest in. It must be what we give ourselves to because the distractions are real and they're dangerous. And so, Father, would you help us as believers in Christ tonight, Lord, to be diligent and not distracted. Father, would you help us? It's in your name I pray. Amen.